And we are back. Thank you so much for joining us. And this is, uh, again, my favorite segment of the show. And this one is overdue. Um, and, and what's funny is we've sort of been setting up for this interview for probably about three, four years maybe. Um, and uh, so without further ado, I could not think of a better person to have on today. We're, gonna, we're, we're not going to be. He's here. We are joined by... Brent Johnson of Santiago Capital. Brent, it's been a while, man. How are things? Oh, things are good, man. Thanks for having me. Always uh, enjoy talking to you. Yeah, well, um, <clears throat> so trying to figure out a guest we had on the show, <laughs> we wanted to have on the show for this week. There, there are a couple interesting things happening, Brent. Um, I, I noticed some quote-unquote impossible things that have occurred lately, which is I, I'm, looking, I'm looking across my screen. I see a dollar index at 103 you know, was pushing 104, essentially a 20-year high. Uh, at the same time, commodities are rallying, and bo- and bond yields are going up, and gold's pushing 2,000. Brent, this is impossible. Who could have possibly seen this coming? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, th- these things aren't allowed to happen this way. Apparently, at least at least that's what I've been kind of told repeatedly. And you know, yet here we are. Um, you know, as you and I have, have spoken on several occasions now. And listen, I'm the first, you know, I'm, I'm the first to hold up my hand and say, listen, guys, I was pretty early on this. And, you know, on Wall Street, when you're early, you're wrong. So if if people, you know, in their hearts and minds need me to say that I was wrong, I, I don't mind doing that. But I kind of think we're here now. Right. I think we're we're at this place where, you know, despite all the stimulus, despite all the bailouts, despite the helicopter money, despite QE one, two, three and however many other you know forms of it, it has taken the dollars at a 20 year high. And, uh, you know, this is kind of, kind of, uh, I don't know if vindication is the right word, but it, but it at least reflects what I've been thinking is going to happen. Um, because as bad as I think the dollar is, I just think every currency is worth worse. Um, and so we, we have, we have a situation where, um, and even equity market, and you know, equity markets are looking kind of ugly right now, but even though they're looking ugly, they're still kind of within, well, not technology, tech, tech, tech's really taking a hit. But, you know, in general, the Dow, you know, a, a week ago, the Dow was in one or within, you know, a couple percent of its all-time high. Um, and it, it's, you know, I think, what is it off now, five to 10% maybe? So it still hasn't been a disaster in equities yet. Um, no. But yeah, you know, so it, it, it just... You know, it, it, we're in this unique, uh, unique market environment, and, and I'm always one who push backs when when people say it's different this time. I actually don't think it's different this time, but it, we're definitely going to see uh, things that we haven't seen for a very long time. You know, I think in these markets. And I want to get into some specific things here, um, but what do you think? Can you give us a short summation? So, if, so for those that haven't heard uh, an interview with you and Brent, or with me and Brent before, I think Brent, we've probably had you on, you know, six to eight times, something like that, over the last four years or so. Um, like yeah, it can for the for the new listeners because we've we've spread out into different markets. So I know we've got new listeners that that haven't heard the show before and certainly haven't heard you talk. Um, for a little background, I heard a, an interview that Brent did. This was probably back in 2015, Brent, on Real Vision, the first video interview you did. Well, yeah, but I mean, the first time I ever did Real Vision was probably back in 2015. That's probably right. Okay, okay, because I saw the first interview you did on there, and that is where you started talking about the dollar milkshake theory. And can you give our listeners? Well, that's, so that's okay. So that that's a little bit incorrect there. So okay, okay. I started talking. Um, 
I started talking on Real Vision um, back in kind of the mid-2000s, probably around the 2015 time frame. And I would often talk about gold. And, you know, and I'm a huge believer that everybody should have gold, right? Mm-hmm. And then maybe a couple of years after that, you know, in the 2016, 2017 time frame, I started talking about how even though I was a huge believer in gold and I thought everybody should own gold in their portfolio, that I actually thought the dollar was going to get stronger. Right, but it wasn't until 2018 when I first mentioned, and and again, this wasn't something that I just had this dream overnight, and all of a sudden it just popped into my head, mm-hmm. right? But through all that work uh, that I'd done, even before I ever went on Real Vision, and then you know the 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 two years, two or three years since I first went on there, you know, I just kind of kept developing this thesis, and you know, the more research I did, the more I thought things were going to play out in a certain way, and. You know, it wasn't until 2018, though, that I kind of I put it all together into kind of one framework for how I saw, you know, the next few years playing out. And that's when I uh, that's when I talked about uh, the milkshake theory, for lack of a better word. And, you know, I can't remember if you and I spoke before I ever coined that term or right around. But but, you know, it was kind of in that time frame when I kind of started developing this thesis. You, we spoke before you actually mentioned the dollar milkshake because I remember okay. I went through – I think you and I have talked about this on the show before. There were similar uh, paths to enlightenment, if you will, that, yeah, right, right. that we were on because um, I was all bulled up on gold and commodities coming out of the financial crisis. And really up until yeah. the end of 2011, you know, you look like a genius. Um, and then that turned around sharply and yeah. you know, kept thinking it was a dip to buy. And it just wasn't. Yeah. It was a dip that kept yeah. dipping. And that yeah. just that, that sent me really down a path of re-education going, what am I missing about this? And I, I, I came probably two and a half years of soul searching, of researching, of reading, and trying to figure out what I had missed. Where did I get it wrong? And I came to this crazy conclusion that I thought when this cycle was coming to an end that you would see a rally with the gold and the dollar and possibly more commodities as well. Because, you know, in a world of infinite capital, the ultimate safeguards were gold and the dollar. And um, and then I was really afraid to say anything to anybody about it because I felt like that was insane. You know, Mm -hmm. and I knew I knew I knew how it is. It's crazy. It's crazy to think things. Well, because it flies in the face of conventional wisdom. And so while I'm sitting there being all timid, afraid to mention it to anybody, I pull up Real Vision and you're saying the same thing in, in even more articulate and detailed terms on Real Vision. And I'm sitting there going, OK, at least I'm not the only guy. And this guy's even done more work on it. I got to get him on the show. Um, and, and watching this play out, man, it has just been fascinating what can you get into a little bit? So just give us the quick synopsis, like I was saying, of what that dollar milkshake theory is for our new listeners that haven't heard it before. Sure. You don't have to deep dive on it. You can no, just kind of give them. Well, so, 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 so I'll give the overview and then I'll, I'll point out that the, the dollar going higher, it, a lot of people think that the milkshake theory is just the dollar going higher. That's not necessarily the case that's the driver of everything but it but it's what the dollar going higher over time does to all the other asset classes that is the real theory and 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 i'll i'm I'm going to come back to this but i think it's important to understand this i think when you actually understand what the milkshake theory says to do you'll see that the milkshake theory 
has actually been playing out for several years now. It's mm-hmm. just that the, 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 the one signal that everybody equates with, with it, which is a high dollar, is, is just now starting to, to, to happen again. So, okay. so the theory has been that at some point, debt will matter. <laughs> now, it hasn't, right? <laughs> for years and years and years, debt hasn't mattered. And you know, monetary authorities and central bankers and even families and companies just kick the can down the road. They borrow more money. They re-leverage up and they just go on about their business, right? And that has gone on longer than I thought it would. But the theory, again, is that we're coming to the end of this grand super debt cycle, for lack of a better word. And when debt matters again... We are going. It is going to cause a currency and sovereign debt crisis, and so the saw. So the milkshake theory is how I believe a currency and sovereign debt crisis plays out. Um, and so my thesis is that despite all of its problems, despite the runaway spending and fiscal profligacy by governments, despite the crazy central bankers at the Fed. Despite the helicopter money and the MMT programs, et cetera, et cetera, despite all of that, that because it has all these negative factors, but because it also has all these positive attributes going for it as a result of being the global reserve currency, that it will actually rise versus all of its peers. And along the way, it will cause, even though I think in general, we are going to be in an inflationary environment as governments around the world, you know, provide liquidity, provide stimulus, do QE, however you want to describe it. They're going to mix up all, they're going to inject the world with liquidity. I think the U.S. and the U.S. dollar and the U.S. capital markets is going to suck up all that liquidity. And it's going to push uh, the dollar higher than many people think. And it would ultimately push U.S. asset prices higher relative to the rest of the world. In other words, we, the U.S. would be capturing the liquidity. The rest of the world would be starved of liquidity. And as a result, on a relative basis, the place you want to be is in U.S. assets and in U.S. dollars. And along the way, you could get these deflationary shocks because based on the way the monetary system is designed... The system is not designed for it to have a strong dollar relative to its peers. So while you can certainly believe in the inflationary endgame, you have to understand that it's always going to be possible that there would be deflationary shocks along the way. So that's kind of the milkshake theory. And what, what we've seen you know, since 2008 is you know they you know the, the, at, at the end of 2008 the dollar index which is a way of measuring the dollar versus its peers uh, was like in the low 70s or high 70s and you know they've done all these programs all these stimulus programs they printed all this money they handed out stimulus they dropped money from helicopters today the dollar index is at 103 so it's 25 percent higher than it was 12 years ago despite all the bailouts and all the stuff since then so you know I think. What people got to understand is that it's not just the U.S. that is in this situation. And all the other governments of the world, all the other countries, all the other monetary authorities have made the same mistakes. They're in the same position. And they also have to do all those things. The difference is that all those other countries and all those other currencies don't have the same level of demand that the dollar does. So if everybody's increasing supply, but only one country has global demand, 
that one country currency should perform better than all the others. And that's exactly what we're seeing happen. Uh, we're seeing the euro at uh, near uh, you know 20 year low. Uh, we're seeing the yen at a 20 year low and it's now broken through 40 year support. Um, we see a number of smaller regional currencies around the world crashing for lack of a better word. Um, and you know, I, I think we're getting into this period where debt is going to matter again. And, and when that happens, I think all of this stuff is going to get exacerbated. The, the other thing I'd say is I'd point out why I said you know the milk trick theory is already kind of playing out. If you look at capital flows and what asset prices have done since March 2020, I'm just I'm just going to cherry pick that day because everybody's familiar with the kind of the carnage that went on in the first quarter of 2020. But since that time. Um, you know, if you look at all the cap, there's so much capital has left other parts of the world and flowed into the United States. And U.S. equities have dramatically outperformed equities in the other parts of the world. In other words, if you were to, if you were to measure global equity valuation increases over the last two years and you were to attribute um, what percent went to each region, far and away the biggest attribution and my guess is it would be 70 or 80 percent of that growth would just come from the u.s u.s markets um and and to me that is evidence that the rest of the world is seeking the relative safety of u.s dollars and u.s markets now that does not mean that you know it's going to be a straight line higher and that there's no risk involved and that you can just buy equities and sit back and not think about it that's not my point but my point is that capital allocators, big institutional capital, does not go and sit in cash. You know, now individuals can choose to do that, or individuals can choose to put 100% of their portfolio in gold if they choose to do that. But big institutional capital does not have that option, and they and so they are always going to look to put that capital into some assets somewhere in the world. And I think when those big decisions are made by those big capital allocators, they are going to continue to allocate to the United States to the detriment of the rest of the world. So that was a very long, rambling explanation, but that's what it is. That was, that was actually pretty concise. It's not a very small topic, right? <laughs> um, now, kind of switching gears a little bit, because I, and you, and you can tell me if there's a better example or if, if there's a better analog that you'd prefer to look at, but um, when you want to know the type of devastating impacts that what you were talking about, right, a surging dollar along with rising commodities and, 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 and rising prices of U.S. assets, if you want to know what kind of havoc that this can wreak, I, I think that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I kind of see Japan as, as, a, as a prime example of that right now. Uh, would you agree? They're one good example of that, yeah. Okay. Um, there's, there's a little bit of difference with Japan because even though Japan, you know, is very much a homogenous native market, it is also one of the largest economies in the world. And there is probably next to the dollar and the euro, there would be more global demand for yen than there would be for just about any other currency. Um, so it's not quite the same, but it is similar. What, what kind of Brent? Explain to the people at home, you know, that are listening, just so they understand, what kind of impact does, you know, you look at the the beating that the yen has taken recently. What is it? Something like twenty eight to thirty percent off 
uh, yep. in relationship to the dollar. And yep. in addition, you've got crude at 106. What what kind of what kind of uh, burden does that does that put on their economy? What kind of impact is that going to have on on their GDP, for instance? Well, so I'm going to answer the question, and, I, and I'll answer it with respect to Japan, but I'm also going to answer it with respect to the whole world because it's not just a U.S. Japan thing here. Um, when you're talking about oil being over a hundred dollars, the yen losing value versus the dollar, and the dollar actually, you know, okay, oil being over a hundred dollars indicates that the dollar is losing value versus oil. Right. Yeah. Then you consider that the yen is dramatically losing value versus the dollar, which means the yen is losing even more value versus oil than the dollar is losing versus oil. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then you consider that Japan has tremendous amount of debt, right? Uh, An incredible amount of debt. They've had it for years and they've been in this deflationary environment because of all this debt. It's stifled their growth. So now they have... And now overall global growth is kind of slowing, right? So you've got slowing growth, and now your currency loses losing value, and they're a commodity importer. You know What led to World War II, many people don't remember, is that Japan had to import all their oil, and the price of oil was really high due to embargoes that, that the U.S. and some other people had put on them. That led to them to, to start World War II. Well, now you've got a scenario again where they have a tremendous amount of debt, a lot of the revenue that they do generate has to go to service the debt. The top line is no longer growing, but now you've got input prices, specifically oil, rising. And not just rising versus the yen, but rising versus the dollar. This is the worst of all worlds, and I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> now, it's, it's bad for Japan, but it's even worse for places like Turkey, who mm-hmm. have even less demand for their currency. And places like China, who have even less demand for their currency. Um, because when your top line revenue is falling and your bottom line costs are rising, you're getting squeezed from both sides. And the way that countries typically deal with a downturn is they print money, for lack of a better word, or they provide stimulus, or they do. You know, they do yield caps where they hold interest rates down in order to be able to service the debt easier. But every time they do that, it actually becomes a vicious cycle where it makes their currency even less valuable versus the dollar. And it actually stimulates the problem that they're trying to solve. Mm. And so when you, this, this is how hyperinflation occurs. Now, when I say hyperinflation, I'm not talking about hyperinflation in the dollar. We are not going to see hyperinflation in the dollar, despite all the rumors and the theories and the you know newsletters and the podcasters who you know say that the imminent demise of the dollar is right around the corner. That's not going to happen with the global reserve currency before it happens to these peripheral currencies. And the reason is because demand. There's still, despite hating it, despite not liking it, there's still global demand for the dollar. There is not global demand for the Turkish lira. There is not global demand for the Chinese yuan. There's not global demand for Argentinian pesos, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so when these countries get into this situation, they start printing their currency um, to try to get out of it, and it creates this vicious feedback loop. And this, the, the way hyperinflation happens 
is when no matter how much money you print, there's still no demand for it. And in fact, the more you print, the less people want it. And so you know, that this is, and not only that, but typically, you know, when this is when social problems start to happen. Right. You look back at any revolution in history, it typically happens during high levels of inflation or or stagnant or a combination of stagflation, right? Where you've got stagnant economic growth and rising input costs. When people are hungry and cold, they're more likely to strike out at their leaders than when they are comfortable and warm. That's just it just makes sense, right? Yep. If you're comfortable and happy and sitting on your couch eating a pizza watching a big screen TV, you know, life's pretty good, right? <laughs> but if yep. but if you're hungry, and your power doesn't work because you can't afford it, and the, the the infrastructure in your country is falling apart because the government's managed it poorly, and your wife is mad at you because you can't bring enough money home in order to put shoes on the kids. That's when people lose their minds, right? And yeah. so I, I'm t- I'm trying I'm kind of being funny, but I'm being completely serious as well. You know, you look back to ten years ago. I think it was about 10 years ago. I think it was 2012, 2013 time frame. All across northern Africa and the Middle East, you had this Arab Spring where these autocratic governments saw their people kind of rise up and protest against their decades-long you know, dic- dictatorial rule. And the reason that it happened was essentially energy and food prices were out of control. And... You know, that that's what happens. I mean, that is literally what happens, you know, when, when people are at their wit's end, they look for somebody to blame and they typically blame the government. So now you've got these economic problems now, um, you know, combined with social problems. And how do governments typically try to deal with social problems? Well, they try to give them money, right? They try to bribe the public with, I promise I'm going to give you this and I promise I'm going to do that. They either make promises or they, you know, they use bullets right? Right. <laughs> to, to, to get people back in line, right? And so if they use money to get them back in line, well, they're creating even more inflation. And if they use bullets to get it back in line, well, that's not a good situation either. But, um, but that, that's, that's how these big, big problems fester. And this is how they end up erupting. And then it happens in one place. And then the other people, you know, on the... In the town next door, or the state next door, or the country next door, say, "Well, well, crap! If if those guys are pushing back, we're going to push back too. We don't have it any better than they do, and it it becomes contagious, right? It's it's like a virus. It starts to spread, and you know, we all know what a virus can do. You know, we, maybe three years ago we didn't know, but now we do, right? Yeah. And there's probably there's probably no greater fear, no very great, no no greater virus on the planet than fear. Fear fear spreads about as quickly as anything. And so um, I just kind of feel like that's the situation we're in now. We were, you know, it's not to say that the, this can't get kicked down the road again. It's not to say that, you know, everything's going to blow up tomorrow. But, but my point is, is we kind of have the perfect storm because of every, all the steps that were taken with COVID and the reactions to COVID. Um, you know, they basically shut down the global economy. They completely broke the supply chain. And then on top of that, now we have geopolitical concerns and tensions, which are breaking supply chains even further. And so, you know, but they provided all this stimulus. And so now we've had these inflationary pressures that haven't been seen in 20, 30, 40 years. 
And it's kind of the perfect storm for, for what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, what, when, when you're looking out, um, when you're looking at the world today and you see, you know, it's really hard to compare, but, but A, I was going to ask you, what, what do you think the closest analog, if there is one, the closest example of something like this that we've gone, gone through before? And, and then also, one of the things that I think is shifting, and I mean, obviously it is because the Fed has completely changed their tune. I think right now that they're a lot, in my opinion, I think it's a lot more heavy on the jawboning. And I, I just, I, you know, my whole thing is, you know, prove it to me, right? Show me that you're actually willing mm-hmm. to do what it takes. Having said that, I wake up this morning and I see that core CPI print. It seems to me, Brent, that their hands are tied. It, it, it seems to me like the guy that's been pouring the drinks for the last 15 years just left the party. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so this has been kind of a relatively, what's the right way to say this, a relatively controversial topic over the last couple of years. Uh, inflation. Is inflation for real? Is inflation not for real? Do we have inflation? Do we have inflation? Is inflation transitory? Et cetera, et cetera, right? And my point has always been that can we get inflation? Sure, we can. Um, and I, I'm the first person to say, you know, look now, we're certainly seeing the inflationary pressures, right? Mm-hmm. The question then becomes, is it transitory or was it transitory or, or is there anything that can be done to get it lower again? And, you know, the, the, the bottom line is, is that when you get supply shocks combined with stimulus, you are going to get inflationary pressures. And that's exactly what we've had. The question is, what comes next? And I, to be honest, I don't know. I, I could make a really good argument either way. But what I would say is that because supply chains have been so disrupted... We're not going to go back to this just-in-time inventory and just-in-time deliver, delivery like we had two years ago. So there's going to be inflationary pressures from supply shocks. But the other thing I would say is I'm not as certain that these inflationary pressures are a give, are go, that, that they're going to continue is a given the way many other people do. Um, and, and the reason is I'm going to say, like, think back a year ago. A year ago, even six or eight months ago, it was an absolute given, a certainty almost, that the government would never stop spending money, they would never stop sending stimulus checks, and they would never raise interest rates. Right. Right? Yeah. Those things were not, you could not even be allowed to talk about those because they they just, of course they were going to spend money. Of course they were going to send stimulus checks. Of course the Fed couldn't raise rates. But now we are. Now, fast forward. You know what? They have raised rates now, but they've only raised them a little bit, and they've only raised them once. So it's not like they've had some grand strategy change. But they did raise them. So the people who were absolutely certain that they would never raise rates were wrong. And the people who were absolutely certain that they would never, ever stop sending stimulus checks are wrong or were wrong. And here's the reason why is because... You know, the argument has been that to get out of all this debt that we are in, you have to inflate it away. And the way you do that is the government spends money, initiates inflation, but they hold rates low. So real rates are negative. And over time, you know, the currency loses value. And that's how you get out of the debt. You inflate the debt away. And that is really, really easy to do on a spreadsheet. 
it's much, much harder to do in the real world because of the political realities of inflation, like what I was talking about earlier. You know, when people start getting hungry and cold and their lifestyles gets in, they start pushing back. And in a place like the United States, that's a democracy, and we could argue whether it's a full democracy or whether it's just a, you know, an advertisement that it's actually a democracy. But you know, relative to the rest of the world, we're we're we are probably still the most free and most democratic. And it's really really hard for politicians to get reelected when inflation is is killing their their constituents. And that's exactly what we've seen with the, with the stimulus bill this year or the budget that, that, that Biden was trying to pass with Build Back Better. He couldn't get enough politicians to spend more money because of the inflationary pressure. So it's just not as easy to pull off. Now, that said, all that said, so my point is that we could have deflationary shocks. And we're starting to kind of see that now, right? We, or, or in asset prices. I'd say we're starting to see deflationary effects in asset prices. If they don't counteract those deflationary effects in asset prices, that could lead to deflation in consumer prices as well. Just like if you go back to March of 2020, you know, everything fell. So, but what I would say, I know I'm kind of jumping around, but it's important to kind of put this in topic. This is what I was talking about. You could have these short-term deflationary shocks along the way, but of course, the government can't just let everything go into a depression without doing something, right? Mm-hmm. So they will, of course, try to counteract that. Um, and that's where we get into this battle of kicking the can down the road and the chickens coming home to roost, right? Which is it going to be? And the truth is, I don't know which one it's going to be. What I think is going to happen, what I think is going to happen is we're going to get into the situation where debt matters, and debts can't get paid back. And when debts can't get paid back, then interest rates typically rise. And so, and I think this will happen even in the U.S., but I think it will happen in other countries first. And as countries start to default and as the sovereign debt crisis starts to kick off, I think what will happen is you will see capital leave, fixed income, and sovereign bonds, especially overseas, or definitely overseas relative to the U.S., and I think one of the primary beneficiaries will be U.S. equities. Okay, so I think U.S. equities will actually rise in the years ahead, as opposed to fall. It doesn't mean they might not go down ten or twenty, thirty percent over a very short period of time along the way, but that's what I believe will happen. Um, you asked me a minute ago. I'm going to say this before I forget. Um, you asked me a minute ago where where else in history have I seen this? There, there's a couple analogies. Um, and I'm not, I don't have perfect uh, notes on this, but from what I've read, I, I can think of two times in history where this has sort of played out before. Um, in the 1840s and 50s, prior to the revolutionary, not the revolution, prior to the Civil War, a number of states went bankrupt in mm-hmm. the United States. And as, the, as those states went bankrupt and those bonds defaulted, investors started selling those bonds and they started putting the money into U.S. equities. And so you actually saw U.S. equities rise back in the mid-1800s when a number of these states were going bankrupt. So I could see that happening again kind of on a global basis. Another time period that makes me, and this isn't related to the U.S., but this is kind of related to what I think is going to happen to the rest of the world. Um, Another time period in history is the 1920s in Germany. This is when Germany went through hyperinflation. The reason that Germany went through hyperinflation is as a result of World War I, 
they had huge reparations they had to pay to the rest of the world. Debts, for lack of a better word. But those debts were not denominated in German marks. They were denominated in dollars or whatever other currency they were. So they had these foreign currency debts that they had to pay off. But they were had such huge sanctions put on them that basically all the money that the country earned had to go to pay off these debts. Well, they couldn't pay it off, so they started printing Deutschmarks to pay off these debts, to then convert them to dollars to pay off the debts. Um, and that is how ultimately you know, Germany ended up in hyperinflation because they just printed so many marks that the, the currency lost its value. That's kind of what some of these other countries are facing right now. They have debts that are denominated in dollars. Uh, their economies are slowing down, so they're printing their local currency to try to use it to go buy dollars to pay off their debts. But they're just actually creating, you know, high levels of inflation in their currency. So those those are kind of two historical examples that I can think of where, where we've seen this type of an event play out before. Yeah, one thing you <clears throat> one thing you uh, mentioned was that that just in time model. Um, and just to clarify, and again, if you if you disagree, let me know. I, I think it's important for people. I, Brent, I could not agree with your assessment of inflation. Uh, any more than I do. Um, I hear the people saying, oh, it's all supply chain. I hear other people saying, no, this is the beginning of the collapsing of the dollar. Um, I don't think <laughs> the dollar is obviously telling a different story. Um, I, but I think the truth generally between those situations lies somewhere in the middle. I do think a big part of this has to do with supply chains. I think there's some of it that has to do with currency depreciation and, and yep. you know, underinvestment in commodities. And I think there's a lot of different reasons. But one thing that I look at is that I think that a lot of goods and services in the world are going to a higher level and they're not going to recede from there. And I, and I think the reason, the reason that I think the listeners and, and people, investors in general need to understand is that the reason that that manufacturing was outsourced to China in the first place was because it was cheaper. Right. So if we've got to re- and I think that you have to repatriate because it's kind of become a matter of national security, has it not? Yes. Totally agree. Absolutely. So, okay, so we'll be yeah we okay we're we're on the same page there. Now, <clears throat> another one, and they, you know, the or people, at least or at least repatriate back to a country that you are either more friendly with or is a little bit closer to home, or that maybe you have a little bit more influence over. <laughs> like, is that, is, that, is that fair? Yeah, yeah, a little more friendly. I think that's a really nice yeah. way to put it. You got to run for <laughs> office, pal. Uh, <laughs> um, and just so people, I, one of the one of the questions I get all the time, man, because the fear mongers are out there, and the collapse of the dollar, and da da da, you know, the Peter Schiff line, right? I, I think that people need to step back right now and ask themselves a question, and, and I'll ask you. I, I'm pretty sure I know the answer, but it sort of comes down to. If, if you think that that is a real fear, if you think that that is really something to keep your eyes on, you need to tell me a country where you would rather have your capital, right? Like Exactly. So where would so just for the listeners at home, if you're worried about the dollar collapsing, tell me a country you'd rather have your capital in, right? And when I can get that answer from somebody like Peter Schiff or any of these, you know, hyperinflationary guys that are, in my opinion, really hyperbolic and really leading people down the wrong path – um, that's just a simple answer. That's just a simple question that I have yet to hear answered with any level of, of, you know, conviction or any level of, you know, to, in terms of something that makes sense to me. Um, well, and I think, I think, I think there's the, what's the right way to say it? I'm trying to think of a nice diplomatic way to say this. I think part of the, part of the reason that this, 
I, I, I would argue that the vast majority of people who are quote-unquote dollar bears or who believe the dollar is going to go through hyperinflation or is going to collapse, I would bet by and large a huge percent of them are Americans. Yeah. And they never really have to think about currencies in two different forms because we have the global reserve currency, right? And when you have somebody that comes on and explains the history of fiat money and explains that governments always default and explains that governments always just print and increase the supply and that's why things get more expensive over time because governments create inflation and on the one hand, I think that's a great service because it is extremely important to understand the negative aspects of fiat currency. And having a little bit of knowledge is a good thing. The problem is when that little bit of knowledge get, makes you think you have full knowledge. Because the next step you have to take is the fact that every country has fiat currency. Right. Mm, yeah. And just because our leaders are idiots does not mean the leaders in China or Russia or Japan or Egypt or Taiwan or Singapore or Australia are all of a sudden these political geniuses who, you know, only do the right thing, have no negative uh, you know, consequences to their actions and, you know, are the most fiscally sound minded people in history. It's not. They're the same everywhere. They all do the same thing. Right. And so, you know, the. The, the, the fact is, is that many people around the world, when they get paid, one of the first things they do, especially in emerging markets, is they go buy dollars. There's actually a video going around. I'll see if I can find it. Somebody sent it to me the other day. And it was basically talking about this. And it was interviewing these people on the street. Like what, you know, on the, they were interviewing these people on the streets who, in different countries who had gone through high levels of inflation. And it was like, what do you do? How do you, how do you fight against inflation? And literally every person says, I go by dollars. I go by dollars. Because to them, the dollar is a very hard currency. It, it holds its value much better than their local currencies. And again, when you're investing, it's a relative game. If you're, if you're taking your money out of, if you're going to leave your money in cash, you know, then you want to pick the best form of cash. Um, if you if you want to put all of your money into gold or silver, then just buy gold or silver, and you don't need to listen to these programs anymore because your decision's already made. There's no yeah. more decisions to make. You buy your gold, you go home, and you just wait, right? But if you don't want to have 100% of your money in gold, and you want to have a diversified portfolio, and you want to have something that you will sell from time to time and trade and you know make some profits, then you know you it's really really important to understand currencies. Because currencies are the biggest, currencies are the biggest factor involved in investing that nobody knows about or that nobody considers. And I think we're getting into this period of time where currency is perhaps going to matter much more than just about anything else. Um, and so, you know, again, I under, I, I, I don't want to, you know, beat a dead two horse on, on, on people in the gold world who, who explain that dollar is going to zero because on the one hand, they are trying to help people and they're, they're trying to show them that fiat currency loses value. The problem is, is when you take it to the extreme and you say the dollar is going to go into hyperinflation and then everybody sells everything that they own and goes and buys gold and gold mining stocks. Um, to, to me, that's not helpful. To me, that's uh, uh, it actually contributes to the problem rather than uh, solve it. 
Well, and I, and I, and I really don't mean this in a... I don't know if it's even possible to say this in a non-pejorative way, but but I don't mean it in a pejorative way. They are the like literally, in my opinion, the dictionary definition of charlatans, meaning they understand a relationship that has existed in the past between gold and inflation, um, that sometimes that relationship has been, you know, uh, uh, rock solid. Other times it really hasn't been. It, it, it inf- and one of the things I think that, that frustrates me is people act as if inf- inflation occurs and then this, this, and this happens, right? Um, inflation is messy. It's all over yeah. the place. It hits different things. Like I, I was telling a couple of our clients, I go, listen, if I told you we were going to see the highest inflation prints in 40 years and I was to tell you, have you guess what some of the best performing assets would be, I bet very few people would pick timber and neodymium, the, the metal that's used to make magnets, right? right. <laughs> so so right. the answer that there's just this one answer, right? Or, or the idea yeah. that there's just this one answer, that there's one prescription, that if you don't take it, you're an idiot. Um, yeah. I, I hear those arguments, and it really is, in a lot of ways, to me, it's pretty similar to listening to Kathy Wood, right? Meaning, I, I don't doubt their altruism. I don't doubt their motives. I'm sure that they're convinced they're right. But, yeah. you know, some of the greatest disasters in the world or virtually all the greatest disasters in the world occurred when the people in control were sure they were right. Um, yeah. and, and so I just I really think people need to be careful of that. What, what do you think the likelihood is, Brent? And I just want to keep it moving just so I don't waste your time here. What do you think the likelihood? I'm looking at this setup right now in markets, looking at the dollar, looking at all the things that we're talking about. And I'm, I'm wondering, I, I like I was telling you, my attitude with the Fed is prove it. Right. I, I just yeah. I, I I I want to see them get aggressive um, before I'm really just going to buy into it and believe that that's going to happen. Um, yeah. But one thing I I've long thought would be a possibility is when they actually do start, if they've got the gravitas, if they've got the if they've got the commitment, and the guts to do it. Um, one thing I think that is a really good po- I, I I sort of think you're going to see things like QE. I remember when QE got announced in 2008, I was afraid to ask anybody what it was because I didn't have a clue. And yeah. then I started realizing that nobody else didn't know what it was either and I right. made, maybe right. kind of breathe a sigh of relief. I, I've kind of thought that the QE this time that might surprise people, there seems to be this belief that you can only do QE if rates are a zero. Now, the Fed has said before that you know, I took a lot of flack because I was saying I think you'll see eventually where they're raising rates and ramping QE at the same time. And I was told what an idiot I was. And then Powell came out and said that a couple of years back, said that, you know, they could do that. What do you think the chances are that we see them raising rates and running QE at the same time? Well, I don't think it's impossible, but I think it's I think it's pretty unlikely. Um, listen, I never put anything past these people. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you, you used let's see if they have the gravitas. I, I would frame it a little bit differently. I, I, I don't think that they have the gravitas to keep raising rates, but I think they may have the hubris to keep raising rates. And what I mean mm. by that is my guess is my, my, my belief is that they are going to keep raising because they think that they can raise and they have the hubris to believe that if they raise too quickly that they can reverse course and that they have the power to save it. Does that make sense? Yep, yep. So they, they, in my opinion, they believe they have much more control than they actually have. And I think, and I, and I think, I think these rate hikes, I don't want to go too far down another rabbit hole here, but 
what's the right way? I think I think the rate hikes are th- the, the, there. There's three. There's three things that, that they may be trying to accomplish with rate hikes. Number one, they're trying to uh, get away from zero. You know, get off of these extraordinary monetary policies and actually normalize. Now, I think that they know that they probably can't normalize. I don't even think that these you know these arrogant people are are that hubristic that they think that they can normalize. But I do think that they think that they can raise, right? And maybe they can raise three or four times. So that's so I think that they, they believe they can do it. I think the other thing that they're doing is I think they actually are trying to fight inflationary pressures to a certain extent, not not because they necessarily want to fight inflation. You got to remember, they need inflation to inflate away the debt, right? Right. But what they don't but what they don't want is runaway inflation to where it causes political problems. And uh, I'm going to I, I will die on the hill that says central banks are not uh, independent. I know that's a myth that's taught in business school and that, you know, that's why we have an independent central bank so that it's not political. I'm here to tell you that central banks are political. <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> and, so, and so I think that part of the reason they're raising rates is they do want to be seen as fighting inflation. And I think because I think to a certain extent they want to keep the current administration in power. Right. I yeah. don't think they want to go. I don't think they want to go back to Trump being president. And the biggest knock on the Biden administration right now is what are you doing to fight inflation? Um, and that, that goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Like the political realities of inflation are much different than what's you know done on a spreadsheet. So I think that's part of it. The third thing that I think is unappreciated about rate hikes is if you consider the dollar as the global reserve currency and you realize that when the the global reserve currency is the biggest weapon in the world and if you you can use that dollar as a weapon and when you think about rate high when, when the u.s raises rates they're not just raising rates on the united states this is different than every other country when canada raises rates they're raising rates on canada when the ECB raises rates, they're raising rates on Europe. When Australia raises rates, they're raising rates on Europe, on Australia. But when the Fed raises rates, they're raising rates on the whole world. Yeah. And they're putting tight monetary policy on the whole world. And there's a lot of countries out there right now that who cannot handle a tight monetary policy. But the Fed is raising rates anyway. And I think if you look at Fed rate hikes as a geopolitical tool rather than just specifically as a US domestic monetary policy tool they make a lot more sense right yeah yeah i mean we 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 have this bifurcation uh, of geopolitical um, you know values or not values but uh, allegiances right now right we've got Russia and China and, and their allies versus Russia, the West and their allies. And, and this is becoming more fragmented as we move forward or it's becoming more polarized as we move forward in time. The U.S. can put tremendous pressure on China and Russia and Saudi Arabia and Turkey and these other countries by raising rates. They can put tremendous pressure on them. And again, if you... We, we may have talked about this before, but one of the analogies I've used several times is it's from The Godfather, which which you say, what does the mafia have to do with governments? And I would say, you know, just about everything. Yeah, but, uh, I'd say they're but, pretty uh, similar. But, but there's in, in, the, in the first Godfather, there's this uh, thing where the, you know, the Corleones are at war with one of the other families. 
And, you know, Sonny Corleone, he makes this comment, you know, we're going to go to the mattresses. And the point of going, the whole, what that refers to is a fight of attrition where, you know, these two families go to war. They know there's going to be heavy casualties. And it's just a matter of who's going, who's going to survive with more men, right? It's yeah. not a war that anybody really wins, per se. It's just a, a war that somebody survives, right? And if you look around the world and you know that we're in this economic downturn, you know that COVID broke supply chains, you know we're going to have a global recession or whatever it is, you would probably rather be the one to be trying to control that recession than reacting to it, right? And if you have the ability to inflict pain on somebody else in that scenario, why not do it? So it would not surprise me. And I I don't know that this is the case. Uh, I'm just, this is me theorizing, right? But... Um, there's no question in my mind that the, the, that the dollar is used as a weapon from time to time. Uh, we just saw that happen over the last couple months with you know the way they weaponized the dollar versus Russia. Um, you know, raising rates and putting pressure on emerging markets. To me, that would be a very simple way to put a pressure on a country who you're trying to get to kind of come over to your side or help you out or, or whatever it is. So. To, to me, when you look at rate hikes as a geopolitical tool rather than a domestic monetary tool, it makes a lot more sense. And so I, I would not be surprised at all if the Fed is is part of a plan to kind of put pressure on the rest of the world and elevate the U.S. relative to the rest of the world, even if that means causing a recession in the U.S. Okay, one other thing that I want to get in before we leave here is – an interesting thing happens, and, and I just I, I want to hear you speak to it, and then also tell me what you think the impact is because it's I really don't know. I'm I'm kind of torn. Uh, Kuroda, uh, the head of the the BOJ, the Bank of Japan, uh, came out and basically said we're going to cap rates at, at 25 bips, and we will buy all you can give us, right? Um, and and if I've messed any of that up, feel free to jump in. What 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 is the impact of that going to be? Sorry, could you could you say that again? I, I kind of something yeah. buzzed in my ear and I kind of missed what you were saying. Yeah, Kuroda uh, recently came out. He's the head of the Bank of Japan, as, as I know you know. And he came out and, and I might be butchering this. I haven't done a lot of work on it. Just read the, you know, read a, uh, one article on it. Um, but came out and essentially said, we're going to cap rates at 25 basis points oh, yeah. and we will buy all you can give us at, at a 25 yeah. bit yield on, on uh, JGBs. What is the impact of that going to be? Yeah, you know, the, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up, and this is probably a good topic to, to, to end on because, uh, t- to me, this is maybe the most important thing in finance that, that people are just now starting to talk about. Um, I was at a conference two weeks ago, and I was asked, like, what, what's the thing that I'm looking at most right now? And I said the yen. And, the, and, 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 I, and over the last two weeks, more and more people have kind of, kind of started talking about this as well. The, the, I mentioned earlier in this uh, in this podcast that the yen had broken this 40 support 40 year support line and so the yen has now depreciated massively and and just from a technical basis you know when you break that level of support that's pretty significant Mm. and and it hasn't just fallen it it's fallen dramatically um and part of the reason is what you just said so when you think about it when when the way that most central banks control monetary support monetary policy is by adjusting interest rates. If you raise interest rates, then that's tight money supply. If you lower interest rates, that's very loose money, mon- uh, monetary policy. So as I mentioned, you know, Japan has been in this 
decades of deflation for, for you know, for 20, 30 years now. And they have had this enormous amount of debt, and it's denominated, or, it's, or the interest rate on that is, you know, zero to negative. But all of their banks, all of their pension funds, all of their insurance companies are just loaded up with these Japanese bonds with the, 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 that have very, very low interest rates. And so as interest rates rise, if interest rates were to rise significantly, that would mean that all these pension funds, banks, and insurance companies that hold all these bonds are all of a sudden their balance sheets are, are blown up, right? So they can't, and, you know, if interest rates rise, it becomes harder for the government to, to service this debt. So they just can't let interest rates go higher. But the problem is, is to, so they basically have this situation where they have to either save the bond market and keep interest rates low or save the currency, in which case interest rates would have to rise. But you can't, you, they can't do both. And because of the nature of the bond market, they have chosen to save the bond market. And that's when you know, Kuroda has come out and said, we are going to buy as many bonds as we have to in order to keep interest rates low. Well, if, what are they buying bonds with? They're buying bonds with yen. And so they're putting more yen into the system. And that means the supply of yen is increasing, which means the yen falls even further. So that, that's, a, that's a big problem, especially for a big currency like the yen. And it's not just a problem for Japan. It's a huge problem for other regional currencies who compete with Japan. As an example, the Chinese yuan. And this is why I think it's so important. The chi- China has pressures of their own. You know, their growth is stalling. They have a huge real estate bubble that they're dealing with. So that's deflationary pressure. They still pay for most of their goods in dollars. The dollar price has gone up. They import their oil. They import their, a lot of their food. So they're getting hit from both sides. Again, low, low top-line growth and increasing bottom-line costs. So they're getting squeezed. And for the last couple of years, they had a lot of inflows of dollars because people were investing in China because that's where the growth was. And you could buy a 10-year Chinese treasury and get paid a lot more than you could for a U.S. treasury. But now that interest rates have risen in the U.S., they're on par with an interest rate in China. So that premium to buy a Chinese bond is gone. So people are no longer buying Chinese bonds. They're actually taking money out of China. So the reason this relates to the yen is that as the yen falls, the yen, you know, things that are priced in yen or Japanese goods are much more competitive now with Chinese goods, which puts even more deflationary pressure on China. And so if you've seen, if if you go back in time in 2013 and 2015, the last two times that the yen weakened dramatically, even though the Chinese yuan is a pegged currency and it can only trade within a band, it weakened both times. And in 2015, they even did a little mini deval to help to help release some of the deflationary pressure in China. And we've just seen this huge move in the yuan now. And so we're now we're starting to see or so the huge move in the yen. And so we're now starting to see the weakness in the yuan. And I think they're going to have to weaken the yuan even more perhaps even let that peg go. And if the peg goes, that's going to send a deflationary wave to the rest of the world. And in the situation that we're already in, that that has the potential to cause chaos. So I think, long story short, I think your question about how important is what Kuroda said, it is extremely important. It's perhaps one of the most important things going right now. Like To watch what markets are going to do, you got to keep an eye on the on the on the yen. 
Hey, Brent, and one quick question in closing. I know you're a busy guy. Uh, but it also seems to me that what Corota did, and correct me if I'm wrong, but from my perspective, sort of like the last stand in extreme monetary policy, right? Just you, we, we've, we've exhausted all other, uh, all other options, and now we're just going to you know, print yeah. as much money as we can, and we're going to defend the yield, right? Yeah, um, that's is, basically is, what they're saying. Right, and, and isn't that corner? It makes me wonder if something will happen here because I look at the West, and you know we're doing the exact same stuff, right? We're just running twenty years behind them. Well, yeah. So it's a very good point, and this is actually what you just touched on is one of the biggest points of discussion or debate or however you want to label that. I have with other people who think the dollar is going to crash because they say this is obviously going to happen here as well. And my point is, yes, it will absolutely happen here. But it will happen here later than it happens everywhere else. And the right. fact that it's already happening in Japan, and as that happens in Japan, the yen falls and the dollar rises, kind of proves my point. It's not that we're never going to have to deal with this. Of course we are. You know, we are not immune. It's just that we will be immune longer than everybody else. It's a relative game. And so the idea that this is going to happen in the United States first and the rest of the world is going to be okay, I think is just extremely naive. Well, we are the Highlander, right? There can only be one, man. That's right. There can only be one. That's right. <laughs> All right, pal. Well, hey, as always, um, it's fascinating to watch this play out, and this has been a fun journey with you. Uh, you know, we've, we've done a lot of these talks over the years, and it's just, you know, even though we talk about stuff, and I'm sure you're in the same place, you know, you see the way things happen, and, and you're still kind of shocked when they do. At least I am. So, you know, fascinating times. Appreciate having you on. And, and for those of you that want to follow Brent, uh, he's got a, He puts out a lot of great information on Twitter. It's at Santi. Uh, what, what is it? It's at Santiago Gold. It's Twitter. Or, Twitter. It's so, at Santiago AU Fund. Yes. Um, you can also just search Santiago Capital, uh, and, and you'll find it. And you can go to like YouTube or Google and type in Brent Johnson Santiago Capital, and you'll get a number of links that you can watch. And and. Brent, are, are do you guys still are you guys still run are you and Ice Cap still doing that collaboration? That's right. We 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 have a fund where we are doing kind of these large asymmetric high risk high reward trades. That as this uh, sovereign debt crisis develops, we think uh, these trades uh, will, will have tremendous upside. Um, it's not something you do with your whole portfolio. It's actually supposed to be a very small percent of your portfolio. But but we think uh, with that with that uh, in mind, it, it makes a lot of sense. And if you guys, um, I can just attest for the efficacy. These are two really smart guys. And if an investment like that interests you, again, you can get a hold of them on Twitter at at Santiago AU Fund and email them. Go to SantiagoCapital.com. Brent, thanks again for coming on, pal. Really appreciate it. And uh, we we got a lot to keep our eyes on. We'll be watching. And um, if we get some fireworks, we're going to have to have you on for, for an update, man. Sounds good. Have a great weekend. All right. You too, pal. And thank you guys for listening. I really hope you got as much out of this and enjoyed this as much as I did. Um, As always, we got another great guest lined up for next week, and uh, you're not going to want to miss it. So have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. You're listening to the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com.
The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management. Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.